Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train is Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. The talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm happy to bring you in this episode my conversation with Rosie O'Donnell. I spent so much time trying to break in that it was really cathartic to speak with someone who has had an exceptional career, a phenomenal ride, and is still going and still struggles. She recently didn't fill out theater seats on a, a tour that she was supposed to do, so instead she shot a HBO special. Yes, I would love to have those problems, but at the same time, I I don't know anyone who's worked so hard and so long as a comedian who's just like really into musical theater also. I don't know. She just seems a very unique person to me. And I do want to point out that she does a lot of philanthropy work. You can check out Rosie's Theater Kids. And I used to love the Rosie O'Donnell show. I don't know if any of you guys watch that show, but if you're missing shoulder pads and a little bit of a early 90s feel. You should check it out. I really liked her episode with Madonna. Madonna takes over the episode, but it was, it was there was something so low budget, even though it's this huge network television show, it just kind of felt like they whipped it together. And I like that. I like that familiar feeling. And that is also why I like Rosie. She's so accessible. Um, so without further ado, here's my interview with Ms. Rosie O'Donnell, and it was taped live at the Writers Guild. Rosie, I'm going to send you your award. This isn't your formal okay. award, but this is, it's important for you to know how far you've fallen. Well, or how high I've achieved. How high you've achieved to finally you know, be the Employee of the Month. A lot of times when I go into supermarket, I see Employee of the Month, and I think, I hope they at least get a good parking space out of it. Did you? Know, you? Did you get a good parking space out of this? Um, no, but if I was, let's say, working here, or if this was a fast food place, or I, would, I think at some places they give them preferential parking. Oh, well, that's pretty good. So my, my mom used to. Sh- oh, sh- I can't say that. Can why? Because she worked for the government, but she would always. She always knew how to get the handicap. She did. She knew how to get the handicap. Yeah. She, I'm not saying she isn't handicapped mentally, but yeah. But she, I have some she knew friends who've done it. that, and I. I always think, don't you feel guilty at all? And they say no. No, they don't feel guilty. Not even mildly. No. Um, I'm so thrilled to have you here because your show, your talk show was so exciting that I was supposed to be working on my thesis and supposed to be getting ready for school, and all I would do was sit. It was like my appointment viewing, the way that 90210 was in high school. Right, which I was also on. In college. Are you kidding? I did one episode. I played a comedian who was educating people about HIV in whatever year that was, pre-everything. I mean, that's crazy. I know, right? so fascinating. Were you taller than all the men in the show? I don't think I worked with any of the men. Okay. I worked in uh, a high school setting. Also, I didn't really watch the show that much, so yeah. it wasn't that, you know, it Enamored. wasn't like it was doing Mary Tyler Moore for me where I would have had coronary arrest or something. I mean, can you imagine? No, I cannot. To this day, that's the best sitcom, in my opinion, ever on ever. the air. I know. Right. It's so, it's, um, it's such a model. So when you were growing up, you got, you got the 
a class president, class clown, and homecoming queen. And prom queen. And prom queen. So how few people were at your school? Like, were there, there three were six, people in your class? 600 kids in my graduating <laughs> class. And I had them all fooled. <laughs> no, uh, how did you win every single award? Well... You, you scooped. Yeah. I would, I would say it was because um, the family dynamic and my mother dying left a big void, and I had a real desire to please the adults. You know, if you don't have parents sometimes, you really look towards other people's parents, my friends' parents, which annoyed all my friends, because, you know, most teenagers are somewhat at odds with their uh, moms, and I would constantly defend the mothers to them, because not having one. Yes, and you, were so, you, you were envious that they had one to begin with. Yeah. Well, I was just so unbearably uh, wanting of that that I could not see any negative sides to having a mother or any possible uh, way that you could treat your mother the way that normal children with a living mother treated them, that I was constantly scolding my friends. You know, I have a friend, Jeannie, and her, her mother, still my close friend, Jeannie and Jackie, my best friends and are still. And uh, Jeannie's um, mother was a hoarder our whole life. Well, we didn't know there was a word for it until that show came out. So the show comes out a couple, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever. And I go, Jeannie, there's a name for it. She like started crying. She's like, ever since I... Uh, you know, I, I actually showed her a documentary years ago called My Mother's Garden. Have you ever seen that? No, I think I need to. Fascinating. Because my mom is a hoarder. Is she? Well, she's not an official hoarder like that, but there's just so much junk that I... We Can have you see the floor? Yeah, but the problem is, like, I, I remember cleaning up magazines, and I'm talking about... I'm not even talking about, like, Vanity Fair. I'm talking about, like, you know, stuff that was taken out of the doctor's office. You know, that kind yeah. of, like... No one needs those... Highlights. Magazines. Yeah, highlights. There you go. And I cleaned them all up, and she was, like, irritated that I had... Yeah. Touch well, them. this is a great documentary for you. Um, a woman with two brothers, and she's now in her 40s. Her mother's stunning, looking absolutely gorgeous. And she has hoarded so much that she's forced to move into the garden. So there's a little garden outside of the house. It's in Los Angeles. And uh, the mother gets put in a mental hospital. And while she's there, the sister and two brothers decide to help the mom, and they clean out the house. And the mother comes back to the empty house and has a complete nervous breakdown. And uh, so I had shown Jeannie that like years ago, but she thought it was an isolated incident. So when the show Hoarders came on, Jeannie was so overwhelmed that uh, there was an identifiable term for what it was that she lived through. And to be able to see all of those adult children raging at the parents and screaming for, you know, the fact that the parent cares more about the Tupperware container. Well, it's an illness. It's I mean, a severe illness. They can't see, they, you know, when you talk about like you can't see the... Forest, forest through the, the trees, trees like right. it, it's a literal interpretation of that where like they don't it's almost did you see the Maisley brothers the big Edie and little Edie um no it's Maisel's Maisel's Albert thank Maisel's. you this is the second I did that with um Cynthia Nixon with Uta Hagen uh-huh. I said Hagen and she's like it's Hagen like okay. Hagen does <laughs> yeah Albert Maisel's <laughs> and he just died yes yes and I actually rented his apartment in the Dakota Oh, wow. Uh, years ago from him, he had a tiny studio for writing that I rented up when I was doing Grease on Broadway and became friendly with him. And that wow. is one of my favorite documentaries. I think it's the best documentary kind of ever made. It was the beginning of reality TV. It, it created a whole <laughs> new genre, both in journalism, I yes. feel like it changed the page, yes. and, and absolutely in documentary films. And then they nurtured all of these younger documentary filmmakers who hopefully pronounced their names correctly. Yes, Maisel's. Yeah. There you go. I'm, I, I'm, Did I've you see the it. musical? A uh, Grease? No. Are you, are you, um, Grey Gardens. 
No, with I Christina Bissell. Was it in Fantastic? And Mary Louise Wilson, both who won the Tony Award for the performance. It was stupendous. It was almost like channeling, not even acting. And they both are singers. And, you know, there was uh, an amazing book and a great score. And I think anything Christine Ebersole does, they should give her a Tony. I agree. Even if she just I, says she's going to audition, they should give her a Tony. I was, the problem with Broadway, and we'll talk about <gasps> your love for it. First is of that all, it is I so just want to say, all right, all right, now listen. <laughs> that I get to, I don't. Do you know how scared I was in. just? The problem with Broadway, it's like every single nerve gets, yeah, you're right, I agree. It's it makes too me expensive. so sad because yes. I was desperate to see that. Christine Ebersole got rave reviews. Yes. And, you know, talk about a cathartic experience for someone. I would have loved to go yeah. see it. But it's just so expensive that it's really hard to get to go see um, things. Yeah, it's become really elitist and it's really sad. Um, even, you know, I have a school here on... This great organization that I wanted to talk about a little bit. But we get those kids to go to see Broadway shows, and sadly, we've had to purchase all the tickets, you know? So yeah. part of the cost of running this whole event is that these children who live in the theater district and never get to see the shows, right? It's like being in Hawaii, living near the beach and never getting to go in, Yeah. right? So we get them to actually go see what it is that's going on in their neighborhood, that they're... Uh, you know, living amongst but never getting to experience. But we have to pay for them as well. So it's, but it's quite then unsustainable. Well, it's not unsustainable because here we are and it's thriving and things are really yeah, going but well. But the industry itself, I don't think, is set up to perpetuate its longevity. I apologize, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what I meant by unsustainable is that if there is not a Rosie O'Donnell in place who happens to be a philanthropic, <laughs> those mm. kids don't get to go to the theater. Oh, well, that's true. I think the organization that uh, we have uh, built for the last 15 years, I think it is, 12, 13, uh, is really needed, and I wish there could be more. And we work, work, work with the Board of Ed, and we go into the most needy schools based on free lunch. So, you know, there's definitely a need for arts programs in, in New York City and across the country, and many states have asked us to replicate it. But, you know, it's... Um, specific in my opinion to New York and although we took the premise and the prototype from Jacques D'Amboise Dance America, uh, he's an amazing dancer and choreographer who goes around the world teaching dance to, you know, people in the Appalachian Mountains, to, you know, people in other countries. We took what he did and we replicated it, only changed it to musical theater, not just dance. I'm so glad he's teaching them, people in the Appalachian Mountains who already are d desperate and needy for jobs, skills that will also not help them <laughs> get any jobs. <laughs> but they'll be able to Mining's do a time over. step. Kickball train, step, step, step. Um, I want to go back and start at the beginning with your childhood because you sort of fell into stand-up, it seems like, but you really wanted to be on Broadway when you were young. Was Bette Midler one of the first stars you saw on Broadway? Yes, Clams on a Half Shell, 1973, I believe it was. I was 10 or 11. I know my mother had died, so it was after March 73. So you were 10 or 11, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember just looking at her and thinking, I want to be her. Not, I want to be like her. Not, I, wa I like wanted to do an I Dream a Genie, like fold my arms in front of me and blink and become Bette Midler. Because I had never seen a live performer with that kind of light, electricity, and talent. Like, I had never seen anything like it. And I, my parents had taken us to see touring companies of George M. Cohan at Westbury Music Fair as a child. Joel Gray, oh, I yeah. believe, was I, in, in it. Cabaret. I saw him in Cabaret. Yeah, that was amazing. But this was in, you know, George, in George M. Cohan. That was a show. Give my regards to Broadway, I believe, was in that. But um, 
I had seen shows, but I had never seen a performer like Bette Midler. So that was the beginning. And, they, and then she had three backup singers called Harlets, right? And so in my mind, I thought, well, I'm not really a good singer, but I bet you I could be one of her backup singers. And then I went to see more musicals, and then I saw you know, more shows, and, and I would stand outside the stage door and watch these sweaty actors come out, and I would think, okay, this is what I definitely want to do. How do I end up getting here? So I never really saw a stand-up comedian. I never... Would you know? I mean, I saw them on TV. I saw Tony Fields. Yeah. Um, my mother never. Was Tony Fields on TV? Tony Fields. Did yes. they have televisions back then? Yes. Ed Sullivan. Uh, I'm I'm 53, so I remember black and white and Ed Sullivan, and I remember uh, watching Tony Fields and Phyllis Diller, mm-hmm. and my mom did not like Joan Rivers. I, I yes, because she was too too abrasive. She was mean to Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, forget Which it. It was a very big crime in my yes, family. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, so she did. She never really liked her. And I remember her always telling me, if you have to be mean and hurt someone else, you're not really funny. And so I was like, wow, that's interesting. So, you know, it took until I was... Um, Do you feel that way too? You know, I think that Joan did so much for comedy and for women... But she is a reflection of the time she grew up in. So, you know, her and, act, her, and herself. Exactly. And her act was very, you know, self-debasing and, and you know, oh, I'm so ugly, oh, I'm so fat, oh, he's, right. It's, and uh, I don't think in today's kind of pop culture lexicon, there's real, even Kathy Griffin, she doesn't make fun of herself, you know. She kind of puts down other people or, or makes, you know, political observations about societal setups, but I I don't know that she tries to eviscerate people the way Joan Rivers did. Yes. But even when you were talking about, you know, when I said, like, how did you possibly win homecoming, you know, queen, class president, class clown, and all these things, you deflected and said, oh, it's because I was so eager to please, but you were completely deflecting away from the fact that, could it be that you were super talented and that's why? Well, I would say this. I'm super accessible. I was friendly to all the groups. So I paid just as much attention to the janitor as I did to the principal, as I did to the nerdy kid, as I did to the jock, right? So I I was an equal opportunity. Like, I I feel like most people in the world have an easy pass that can get them in to me, right? And there's so many different easy passes that give them access. So when I walk down the street or when I go to a restaurant, people will come over and say hello to me and feel an intimacy with me, that makes me sometimes question whether or not I've met them before, right? Normally I go through, okay, try to see if I actually know this person. Try Is this to, menopause, fame, right, or, or Facebook? Exactly. And, uh, but then they will tell me what the connection is. So people will say, my mother died when I was a kid too. I also have a child with a learning disability. I also uh, had a heart attack. I lost weight too. I'm a gay person. I'm, you know, there are so I many... I have eyebrows. Well, that's my point, is there are so many ways, and I'm so sort of open about all of the areas of my life, that many people can fit inside or feel as though they can go right through the door. But that is a rare gift, and I will say that that is also a rare gift in a stand-up. That, meaning that I, I'm thinking of the, your peers, like Seinfeld or um, Steve Martin and... Um, even uh, Whoopi Goldberg, per se, I don't know her intimately, but I would say that people can put themselves out there, but that doesn't necessarily um, make them accessible to other people. And that is a rare gift that you possess as a stand-up. Yeah, and I think it was probably before I was a stand-up, too. Like, as a young kid, 
my parents used to tell me that, you know, I would talk to everyone in the street. I would stop, you know, as a young child, I would stop and talk to the ice cream man. I would stop the ice cream man and, hi, you know, what, do, do you have any kids? What, you know, I would just talk to people. You can call it, you can call it neediness, but I'm going to call it empathy. So, like, I feel like what I think what I was trying to say before is so many, um, what makes a brilliant stand-up comedian in part is having self-awareness and then being able to articulate that in a way that's really funny. You also possess empathy. So it's another step, and I think that's why you were able to bridge um, from going from a presentational style of stand-up to a conversational style yeah. of being a talk show host. Yeah, and that was really interesting. The thing that helped me the most do that was being a VJ because when you do stand-up, you know, you present a fully wrapped package and, and you know it's presented really well it's like from Tiffany's it's in a box it's got a bow ta-da and there's a whole journey of you open the bow you open the thing this paper in and there's the gift when I was a VJ I was on for two minutes on VH1 on VH1 in 1988 and this is like I, I know I sound so old saying this but I feel like when we were young MTV and VH1 really were changing the face of culture, whereas now I feel like they're such mainstream brands Yeah, that it's a completely different era. Pe- people but that- didn't know what VH1 was, including me. When I auditioned actually for MTV, they were looking for VJs, and I auditioned at the Improv, and Steve Leeds, the talent booker who still works at MTV, he, uh, I went over to him afterwards and said, what do you think? And he goes, you know, you're really funny, but you, you don't really look like the look that the channel, you know, wasn't hip and, and cute and young and trendy. I was the opposite of that. And he goes, we have another channel called VH1. And I remember seeing Rita Coolidge on there, who I had always enjoyed when I was younger. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll try that. So when I did VH1, people didn't really know what it was, including me. But for two minutes, four times an hour, eight hours a day. So you had two-minute chunks, four times an hour. So you had eight (laughs) minutes an hour. This is like the easiest job and like the most annoying at the same time. Well, you're in a room that's... Eight foot by eight foot, there's two cameramen and you, and that's it. Now, if you look at your watch, I'm going to tell you now, ready? I'm going to try to do two minutes. Just really quick. Look at your watch. Okay, good. Tell wait, me wait, when hold to on. start. We're starting okay. in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and go. Hi, this is Rosie O'Donnell here on VH1 Video Hits 1, the other music television. Let me remind you, that was Whitney Houston, her debut CD, eight number one singles, and that, I believe, is a record. She wants to dance with somebody, somebody who loves her. And speaking of dancing, VH1 A Go-Go is going to be on Friday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time, for two hours. Dance your head off. How much we got left? Rosie, you got time. Right, now here's 36 the thing. seconds. Left? Yeah. You had to make up. All right, so what are you going to make up So then I would say, I was on the way here today on the bus, and a woman came over to me and told me that um, my pants were too tight. And I would just talk about what happened in my day. And all I had for an audience were these two cameramen. And I would wait till they would jiggle it. I could see the camera moving, and then I knew, okay, that was funny. This is what stand-up is also good for, because I feel like the nights that you perform for two people yes. versus the nights that you perform for 2,000, it's really important to be able to do both well. Yes, and the nights with two people, you know, when you're waiting at the <laughs> bar, Catch a Rising Star, 1983, and everybody's dying to go on, and there's only a few drunks left, and it's 3.15, and you've been there since 8, you're happy to get your spot, so you just go up, you know? How much do you think was timing? I mean, you, you really did start at in the boom. I mean, you started in 78, right? Yeah. The first time I went on stage was then. And uh, I graduated high school in 80. So you were 16? I was 16, yeah. That's crazy. I know. But I had done... In Huntington, New York? Yeah, the first time ever was in uh, Richie Minervini. This guy owned a club called Eastside Comedy Club. 
and he his I think his parents were married twice, or there was a you know a late term baby. So his youngest brother was ten years younger than him, or something. So he was in my grade, Craig Benavini. But his older brother, who was like twenty eight, thirty, which is old when you're in high school, he owned a comedy club, and he said you should be a comedian. And I told him I didn't want to be one. I said I want to be um, you know on Broadway in. Uh, you're Pippen. like. I'm going to be in Pippin. I don't really have time for this Best right little now. whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> uh, chorus line. God, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. How many people does he need? How many boys? How many girls? Yeah, I can tell you every Broadway musical, but really, why should I? <laughs> Wait, so when you're th- I, what I also loved is the first time you went up, you killed. The second time you bombed. I had the exact same experience. Really? What is the delusion that continues? Because <laughs> it didn't matter. I mean, I ate it like nobody's business the second time. It was two in the morning. These women were yelling at me to not only get off the stage, but but please leave the uh, city. And <laughs> <laughs> the first time I won some contest at Stand Up New York, and I went to collect my prize, which was a, a trip to, to San Francisco. And wow. I, I go to collect my prize. I still have the email. It says, I'm sorry if the word trip was ambiguous. It's a one-night hotel stay and a five-course tasting meal, which is like, if you walk to San Francisco, anyone is going to give you snacks and probably let you stay in their house. Probably. I mean, it was like the most, but it was such a good introduction to stand-up because it's so, it's such BS. Yeah, you won. <laughs> I won. Yeah. Well, the first night I had all the kids from my high school with me, so everybody laughed because they knew me. So we had 25 16-year-olds who snuck in with fake ID. The next night was a school night. Nobody could come. So when I went back, it was just normal people. And they're like, who is this child? I mean, I looked really young at 16. I looked like just a little tomboy. I, I remember as, when I was a young comedian, people saying, oh, my God, aren't you upset this Roseanne Barr? And I was like, why would I be upset? It's totally. Number one show on TV. If they're going to give Roseanne Barr a job, she just broke down the door for all of us. I could not agree. They try to pit us against each other the same way they do now with, like, is there going to be a black male or a, a white female host of The Daily Show or whatever, as if that's the only kinds that exist and that really who they you should look at is all the other white males who are hold, hosting all these other shows you know like I think they pit women against each other for that one spot on the bill or something like that right in some ways they do and I think that uh, you know it's a patriarchal misogynistic society yeah. right our culture women are oppressed minority and um, we fall into uh, the category of you know one is okay, but like I remember being picked up at airports and having the club owner say to me, we had two girls and they both sucked. So if you're not good, we're not booking any more women. No, no pressure, you know, right? Like club owners would literally tell you yeah. that you were responsible for whether or not your gender was ever going to appear in this club, Charlie Goodnights in North Carolina, right? I wasn't fuckable enough at the comic strip. See, that, that was never an issue for me because... You were fuckable. No. Because <laughs> I was gay and totally don't relate in a sexual manner, rarely even now, right? I, I am totally like, everybody's my friend. I, I don't, unless you, if you want to have sex with me, you had better be very clear and say, I would like to have sex with you. And then I will question what I heard and said, you want to go see Interstellar with me? What did you say? Like, I don't think that that ever, I don't really, I don't know. My therapist wants me to work on it. My friends will tell me, that person was hitting on you. What person? That person, are you kidding me? There's a, a pretty famous, well-known singer, uh, Broadway singer, and about five years ago, we were out somewhere, and she goes, I still am embarrassed. I said, of what? Like, I'm thinking maybe it's on my show, something. She goes, of what? 
I go, yeah, of what? She goes, that time that I hit on you and you just ignored me and then you just walked out. I go, first of all, I didn't know you were gay <laughs> until this moment. Second of all, when did you ever fucking hit on me? How? What? She's like, it was so obvious. It was so blatant and everybody saw and you ashamed me. I shamed you. I didn't even know. Like, I am so not in tune with that that it's, I really need like seven or eight wing people to nudge me and go, seriously, that's happening. It is occurring. When you started out, your third time up on stand-up, you stole Seinfeld's act. Have you ever told him that yeah, story? Yeah. What did he say when you told him that you were doing his jokes? Uh, you know, I think he heard it like so many times before we ever met. Okay. Uh, that I, I, you know, I've spoken to him about it since, but... Um, not only did I stay, take his jokes, it was the, so the first night I killed, all my friends were there. The second night, I sucked, and it was a Sunday. So Monday, I watch, or Tuesday, the club's open. Tuesday, I'm watching Merv Griffin, and there's this guy, Jerry Seinfeld. And he's talking like this. So I'm thinking, hey, maybe I'll talk like this too. And I went on stage, and I pretty much did his act. And ow, there were no VCRs back then, so I just had to remember what I heard the day before, right? So I thought a joke is a joke. You tell a joke, didn't, I didn't know you had to write your own material. Like, so I, I go up there and I go, I'm driving here today and my car stalls. I opened up the hood and I'm like, what am I looking for? A big on-off switch? On-off? That was his joke, right? I walk off stage and the three or four comics like, you know, crowd me and go, where'd you get that material? I go, Jerry Seinman or something? <laughs> he was on uh, Merv Griffin yesterday. and You're not allowed to take those jokes. I'm like, why not? That's his joke. I go, a joke is a joke. I go, Barbara Streisand doesn't write her songs. Why, does, why do I have to write my jokes? I'm not a writer. And they're like, that's how it is. And so then, you know, they're like, you should come and watch. Then I came and I watched. And I'm like, okay, I get this. You take your own life and just tell about your own life and your own stories. You can't take someone else's stories. All right. Your most recent HBO um, stand-up special was so poignant. Thank you. And um, I don't know anyone... I mean, you can see in the audience, but I don't know anyone who wasn't riveted from the beginning to the end, and you never know what's happening next. And I thought you were really vulnerable on stage, and it was clear that these things were close enough, you know, that you hadn't had enough time to look back and have this distance. I was very impressed. Were you scared to do that? Well, Sheila Nevins, who's, you know, the woman I admire most in showbiz and the actual showbiz part of showbiz. Yes, how come? She's also been on the Employee of the Month. Oh, she has? Yes. Uh, She is the smartest woman I know. And uh, the most talented woman I know. She has a bullshit detector and a uh, Geiger counter for people's spirits, and she can find the heartbeat in a story in five seconds. And I think she's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And we've been friends for about 20 years. And so as soon as I had my heart attack, as soon as I woke up, I called her from ICU and said, listen, we got to do a documentary about this. All these, I couldn't believe 300,000 women die of this. That's right. What the fuck? How come I didn't know? Like, and she's like, okay, 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 get out of the hospital. And then, so I'm out of the hospital. I go meet with her, and she's like, I think it needs to be funny. I go, what? She's like, it needs to be funny. As in what? As in, I think you should do stand-up about it. I was like, Sheila, I don't know if it's possible to do, okay, well, we want to shoot it in February. Is that what it was? Or January? April. April. So now we're in, it's near Christmas. So could you get it ready for uh, April? Now, we had planned a whole tour in Australia. I had never been to Australia. Well, we didn't sell any tickets. They came back and they said to Lori, um, you know, they had to pay me, which I felt so bad. 
if I ever do go there and perform, I'm going to give everybody $5 back because I feel shitty that they had to pay me. Not the people, the club owners or the theater owners, but I could not sell enough to justify going. So then we ended up booking tiny little clubs like the size I started in, like Eastside Comedy Club, and it was like going home again. It was like starting over, being a young comic, and it was wild to be sitting backstage, like getting the cheese platter, like I used to do, watching uh, these young comedians try out their act and, and feeling so maternal to them, going, can I talk to you for a second? Do you know that thing that you did and about the, you know, do you understand how that joke is offensive in this way? Or, you know, if you put this tagline, you could call back the, like, I, I found myself fascinated again by the art form, and I had been away from it for so long, and I felt so guilty. Like, sometimes I would see a, a woman on TV, and she would have a special, her own special, and I didn't even know her name. There was a time where I could name every female comedian working in the country. And now there are so many. Right. And I'm so out of it. You know, now my children introduce me to comedians who are funny. But that, the irony there is, you know, Nora Ephron's kid is who helped get you in, um, you know, Sleepless in Seattle. Yes, he did. <laughs> because he knew you. And, and, and now he's just finished making a documentary for Sheila on his mother oh, wow. that I'm in. And his mother got me an apartment in his building. So I was there when he was coming out and getting drunk and he, coming to my apartment so his mother wouldn't know. And so I had my whole life with Jacob and Nora. And, and when Nora loved you, Nora took you into her family. It wasn't, you know, a showbiz relationship. It was a real life thing. And, uh, you know, I, I still to this day don't believe that she's gone. It's still very hard for me to um, process it because, you know, we didn't know, like a car accident, if somebody calls you and says, so-and-so died in a car accident, you'd be like, what the hell? You know, I had seen her like a month and a half before. Yes. She met Michelle and, uh, you know, Nick and I and Michelle and Nora had dinner at Orso like we always did. She ordered the liver and a kier like she always did. Five weeks later, Jacob calls me to say, it's mom, she's not gonna make it. I go, make what? It's like, well, she's had leukemia for six years. I was like, what? And everybody felt that. Now listen, in hindsight, do you get to die the way you want? Yes, you do. Do you get to live if the you're way lucky. you want? If you're lucky. Right, and her son, you know, had the greatest line, Max. Her son, Max, said, you know, that he, she didn't even tell them. Yes. And he, they went to see the Beatles show or the Michael Jackson show or something at Cirque du Soleil in Vegas a couple months before she died. And she hugged him at the end and whispered in his ear, I'm sorry, you had to live through that, right? And so Max said it's the best memory as of his mother because it wasn't couched with any over, overly emotional sentiment because they knew it would be the, it was just his mother being his mother, right? There was no, so I, I don't, uh, I'm not angry at the way, but I have to tell you it was very hard. <laughs> Yeah. It was very hard for me personally. It's still hard for me personally. And the Joni Mitchell thing last night, I'm like, I, I always said, uh, you know, this is so weird and I hate to admit this, but I'm going to say it. When John Lennon was killed, I was a freshman in college. And the first thing out of my mind, thank God it wasn't Barbara Streisand. Now, I said it out loud at, in college. We were all sitting around and, and this one freshman said, John Lennon has just been shot and killed. And before I could even think, before my mind could register that, I said, thank God it wasn't, and everybody had looked at me like, what is wrong with you? That was my first thought. 
is that this is an essential human being to me in my life and on the planet, and she cannot go away. So the fact that Nora went away, really hard. The fact that, you know, Joni is ill, although I hear she's up and talking, and I'm going to try to call her and uh, make contact, that was very difficult. And, you know, Barbara Streisand really needs to live forever because I don't know what would happen to me <laughs> if she doesn't. Um, all right, my last question is that you walked away from an insane amount of money, mm-hmm. and I think you were probably one of the first or only talk shows. No, people. Dave Chappelle did it. That's right. That's right. And when I met him a few years after... Um, I shook his hand and I said, hey. He goes, hey. He goes, you did? I say, yeah, you did? He goes, yeah. I said, all right. You know, I don't know. It's like a little club you can be in. Well, I also think it just speaks to the integrity of starting out. Maybe I, I overly identify because I came from the stand-up world, but that's where I feel closest, those who feel like my kin, even though you are so much more um, prolific no, and talented. Uh, stand-ups are stand-ups. I always feel this family. Yes, that's and, true. And I, I felt that way with him, too, and I got it. Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, you don't want to produce something that you don't feel proud of? Well, comedy is about telling the truth. And if someone is going to prevent you from doing that, you have to leave that environment. And also the idea that, like, you can make enough money, like, that there is actually, like, I've made enough and I'm really grateful for it. And I actually don't need to, like, Well, I was at a table with, with Nora, Nora yeah. and, and Marty and... and Who's uh, Marty? Marty Short and okay. Steve Martin and... All of these luminaries of, you know, Nora Ephron's gathering, you know, was all, I mean, I normally don't have meeting, you know, dinner with 12 famous people, but when I did, Nora was usually the one who organized it, and I remember saying, you know, we were talking about me leaving, and and, um, and Mike Nichols was there with Diane, and I said, um, they go, well, why would you do that? And I said, because I have enough money. And Mike Nichols said, a sentence that's never been uttered in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I suppose... But, you know, without being too graphic, if someone tells you that you have $100 million and you think you need $100 million more, you have wasted your life. I agree. So, I, you know, I got to a point where the money was absurd. And nobody likes How to, absurd? $100 million. Oh, my God. That you already had or that you were going to... I already had $100 million and they were offering me $50 million a year at the time I left. And you're like, I don't need to own more countries. I've got an apartment, a country house, I don't need more. I had a home in Miami. I had a home in Nyack. Yeah. um, And a department in Manhattan. Uh, I didn't know what else I could do. Like, I I didn't know. (laughs) And also, you know, my children were, my son was in first grade, and I wanted, he was seven, and I wanted to get out before he was really in school because I knew that the repercussions of having a mother on TV daily were going to be difficult. And um, if I didn't have to do it, why would I choose to do it? Especially because my mother didn't live to do all those things that I love to do, like go to their basketball games. You know, my son... Now you can go to his, his military talent shows? I don't know what they... The Citadel, actually, did they have, he, like, gun He shows? ended up not going there. He did! He ended up going to Hofstra University. Fabulous. And coming home on the weekends. And now what's next for you? I don't know. Uh, I uh, read a play that I really like for Off-Broadway that I might do. But, you know, again, I have five children, and that kind of commitment to a play, you know, you can't, you can't uncommit. And, you know, I was very lucky at The View that they were kind and that they listened to my doctor's recommendation that the stress level was really detrimental to a woman who had a severe heart attack two years ago. 
uh, three years ago almost. So, you know, I have to, to um, make sure that I can commit to that. And with five children, a few of whom are in crisis, it's hard to know whether or not I can do that. We did have the family meeting, and we'll see <laughs> what the votes are this weekend. It has been a pleasure and privilege to have you as the Employee of the Month. I have so admire you for reinventing yourself constantly and also just enjoy it. And I'm just going to encourage people to check out your HBO stand-up special that's out, as well as your nonprofit. They can go to rosie.com. Yes, everything should be there. Rosie. And I just want to thank you for Employee of the Month. I never thought I'd get it, and thank God I finally did. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank the Writers Guild. I want to thank Ian Mazoff and all of you for listening. If you like the show, please donate. EmployeeoftheMonthShow.com. You can go there and donate on PayPal. Super easy. Otherwise, please come to a live taping when you're in New York. They're super fun. And I think you're following your dreams. I hope you are. I hope someone is. Let's just focus on may all your good dreams come true. I'm Katie Lazarus. <laughs>